back again, are we? Uh, for some more delightful, titillating interviews with the host with the most. That's me, Alfie Faber. That's me. I'm the host, and obviously, duh, this is Sound Perspective. Hopefully, you've been listening eagerly from day one and are a massive fan of mine. But if not, uh, hello, I'm Alfie. I'm a filmmaker in Sydney, and I chat to people in film whose work I find interesting. Often directors or sound designers or editors, people who deal with the craft of audiovisual juxtaposition. I know it's bizarrely niche, but, uh, you know, that delightful idiosyncratic aspect of filmmaking, which makes it such a powerful and unique art form. Anyway, today we are chatting to a titan of Australian film, Garth Davis. Garth came out of Melbourne in the late 90s, making commercials at Exit Films, which is uh, one of Australia's... um, uh, most highly regarded TVC production companies, uh, alongside some previous podcast guests and really uh, phenomenal Australian filmmakers such as Glendon Ivan and Ben Lawrence. Uh, you should definitely go listen to those episodes again. They were really good interviews. Um, he made a really cool feature documentary back in 2000 called uh, Pins, uh, short for parking infringement notification system, I think, uh, which was about Melbourne parking inspectors and uh, then delving into their bizarre personal lives. He continued being one of Australia's most applauded and well-respected commercial directors, and then in 2016 jumped right back into long form, really in the deep end, with his feature film Lion, Uh, a phenomenal and really heart-wrenching drama starring Dev Patel as an adopted man in Australia desperately seeking his birth family in India. Uh, It was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, Um, and I remember at the time it was a massive deal to have an Australian film nominated for that many. Um, His next film was 2018's Mary Magdalene, a really beautiful and ephemeral story about the life of Jesus and his apostles, but told through the lens of Mary Magdalene. Um, But of course, this interview, we focused on his most recent film called Foe, a hallucinatory sci-fi slash drama blend starring Paul Mezcal and Sasha Ronan. Hope I'm getting that right. Saoirse Ronan. As uh, Junior and Hen, a young couple living on a farm in a dystopic future, a stranger arrives at their door with a life-changing opportunity that forces them to question their relationship. It was really friggin' cool. I got to see it at a, um, you know, preview with a Q&A by Garth, who had some very interesting thoughts to provide. I'm really glad I got to see it in the cinema because the cinematography and the sound design were out of this world. I won't go into it too much more right now. Uh, You'll hear from me and Garth uh, discussing it in a bit. Um, A fun fact about Garth for the more cinematically inclined listeners here is that Almost all his films up until Foe were shot by the highly esteemed DOP Greg Frazier, um, a phenomenal legend of the camera who has since gone on to shoot 
Batman, Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, he won an Oscar for Dune and he's now on to Dune 2. You know, he's probably up there with, you know, your um, Roger Deakins. He's probably like one of the most uh, highly respected DOPs in the world right now. And um, uh, it's really interesting that Greg actually started as a cleaner at Exit Films. Um, he worked his way up into shooting stuff, often collaborating with uh, Glendon Ivan. Uh, and he shot Garth's uh, 2000 documentary Pins, which I just mentioned, um, which is actually Greg's first IMD IMDb credit as a DOP, which I think is pretty cool. Um, before we get into the chat, I just wanted to say that Faux comes out 2nd of November and it's friggin' amazing. Please go watch it in the cinema. Um, I think you will have a really interesting time. Anyway, enough from me. Over to Garth. Garth, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and welcome. No well, I wanted to start off the chat with uh, your earliest film, your feature, which um, I managed to get a VH. Oh, is that in focus? <laughs> I managed to get a VHS copy of, uh, for people just listening, uh, this is a VHS copy of Garth's first feature film, Parking Infringement Notification System. A doco. Or, yeah, a doco, known, uh, also known as PENS, which was made back in 2000, um, I believe, which I really loved. And I'm so glad that I managed to get a copy um, from the Afters library, shout out to the Afters library, um, because I found it quite insightful as to common threads throughout your whole filmography and all your work in general. Um, what are your memories of making that film? Oh, gee whiz. That's, that's a long time ago. You know, Greg Fraser um, filmed that with me. Yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. That, watching. Back when we were very much younger. <laughs> years younger. Um, I guess at the time, um, I was pretty desperate to do something that wasn't a commercial. Mm. And uh, this producer came along who suggested we do a doco about parking inspectors. And it was just meant to be like a little 30-minute thing. And I mm. thought, well, that's a great chance to get, you know, something on the reel and have an experience. So we, we, we sold it to the ABC straight away, which was pretty amazing. Mm. So we started filming this, what was meant to be just a fairly normal documentary. But mm. as I, as we finally met these parking inspectors, it just dawned on me that these were really incredible characters, mm. you know, um, and I just wanted to go home with them. I just wanted to like get into their lives. And um, I guess I just thought, holy shit, there's a whole movie here. Like mm. there's a whole story here to explore mm. and, and that was inspired by the characters, my love of the characters. Mm. And um, so, and that's actually got me excited. Mm. And so we went back to um, the ABC and um, just basically said, you know, we we want to turn this into a feature, a feature documentary. We want to make it a character study. Mm. And it very much was. Um, it's uh, interesting how the, the, I mean, the plot element of them being parking inspectors is not a crucial part of the film and it very much focuses on the inner lives of the guys. And I thought it um, 
<clears throat> I thought it really demonstrated something in your later films, how you're very character focused and yep. very driven on um, performances and characters. So the fact that your uh, first longer form film was a doco, which is something that I don't think you've returned to since, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? So was uh, going for a documentary partly because it was somewhat more achievable, like a bit lower budget, smaller crew? It was nothing. I was, it was definitely nothing I was seeking to do. Mm. Um, you know, as I said, it was just this opportunity to do something. I thought I'll, I'll give that a go. But then I found something in it that I could relate to in a deeper, more creative way. And that was these characters. Mm. And then as I was going along, I guess what I realized was um, just how surprising everyday people can be. Mm. And, um, and I guess I just learned a lot from that. Mm. Um, and I also learned a lot about, because um, we filmed for quite a while. I also learned a lot about human behavior, mm. where the stakes truly lie in real lives. So I guess in a way it was like a masterclass of acting for me. It was like a masterclass <laughs> of truth telling yeah. and, um, and, and relationship building and how to build trust, um, how to find the poetry in, in everyday stories, mm. uh, things like that. Um, so yeah, I found it immensely uh, informative to mm. my, to my, to my craft mm. essentially. Yeah. yeah. So you said that um, at that point you were already directing commercials a lot. Um, yeah. And how how long had you been doing that and how was that something that you came into doing? Oh, look, I've been doing commercials since I was 20. Mm. So I've been doing it for a long time. Um, it was, I came from graphic design and fine art. Oh, right. Um, and kind of in a way, I wanted to get into, not not that I wanted to get into film, I was mucking around with film cameras mm. a lot and mm people really liked what I was doing and mm. said, can you do that in my commercial? And yeah. that's kind of kind of happened. Um, but it wasn't the plan. Once again, I, I wanted to do fine art. I wanted to do painting. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I kept getting pulled into these things. And then eventually uh, I was doing something. I can't remember now. I was mucking around and I stuck the film together with my sticky tape and projected it through a projector and I felt emotion. Mm. And, and that's when I got addicted to, the alchemy of cinematography and filmmaking. That's when I got really excited by, by it as an art form. Yeah. Um, but commercials was, I guess, the way I made a living. Um, mm. But I also saw it as a double benefit. It meant that I could learn how to tell stories, um, negotiate and sell ideas in front of clients. Um, mm. How to get emotion across in 60 seconds is a real art. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and, you know, I got to play with toys and cameras and it, it was my films, my film school in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I had a bit of a broad question about your use of music because I've been rewatching all your films the past couple of days. And I noticed a very common thread through your films of um, really striking film scores. I just rewatched Lion and um, I, I noticed how much the, especially like the intro the music in the intro it reminds me of like philip glass scores from like the piano and truman show what were what are, what are some of your favorite film scores and like uh, what have been some of your inspirations for that i guess it, weirdly when i was a film you know when i was going becoming a filmmaker um and you still hear it today everyone's everyone's kind of anti-music <laughs> and 
it's yeah. kind of weird. It's like if you use music, you're failing, and yeah. um, or if your actors cry, yeah, you're failing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I guess I, I was, you know, it wasn't cool. It wasn't cool to have any of those things, and I found that really hard because for me, I love music, and mm. all the movies that I grew up loving um, had had the music very front and center, mm. but the music, the music for me. Um, is the heart and soul of the story you're telling. Mm. That's what it is. Mm. So if you, the opening track online is the heart and soul of this whole movie. It's almost going, this is, this is the DNA of our movie. This is mm. the soul of this movie. And and this is, it, it gives it to you immediately. And then you discover it during the journey of the film and, and movies like the mission. Um, um, I mean, there's so many great, I can't think of them all now, but there's so many great, or even the Godfather yeah. for example, um, these kind of haunting kind of thematic totems of, of, of the film soul. Um, mm. and, and I guess that's for me, if you're going to go music, that's what it has to be. It's not music that's manipulating the scene. Mm. It's music that is, um, in a, reinforcing the soul of the story. Yeah. And, and I guess that's what excites me. Yeah. It's ground. It grounds it in, um, something that you can come back to throughout the whole film. Yeah. That's um, right. And uh, I've noticed that uh, in all your films, you've worked with uh, more than one composer, like um, at least two. <laughs> and then in Faux, that had three composers. So um, what what has led to you working in that way? Oh, yeah, I, I, it's weird, isn't it? It's definitely a habit I have. Um, look, it's funny because, you know, when you make films, you you join a group of, you join, you join a mentality of how you're meant to make something. Yeah. And, um, and uh, yes, you're meant to go to the composer and the composer comes up with music and, and look, if you get a good enough composer, I'd be pretty confident they could probably do everything for you. Mm-hmm. I guess um, for me, I've never really found that person uh, yeah. at this point of yeah. the game. So I guess in, 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 and sometimes my movies, I'm trying to find two things that feel very different to each other. Yeah. And and I guess the reason why I go to two composers in, in the movies you're talking about is because I believe they have very different qualities, but uh, but philosophically similar, I mm. guess. Or, or they would both understand the story that we're trying to tell. And, and together, I just found that like an exciting proposition. You can kind of almost just feel it. You go, yeah. this could be good. Yeah, they complement so each because, other. Um, that's right. Yeah. And and when you bring them together, they're going to create something they wouldn't ordinarily by themselves. Mm. And in fact, something super special together. Yeah. So it's almost like you're putting a band together mm. in a way. You um, you're kind of encouraging great artists to come together and find something unique and special that um that hopefully will feel unique and special in the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I um I think something really interesting about your the scores in your movies is how they that they change they change a bit they're not like a hundred percent uh exactly the same throughout in a way that keeps you on your toes and is really rewarding like in mary magdalene it was really heavy on the strings for almost all of it which i'm sure uh what's what's her hilda Hilda yeah, Hilda, yeah. Hilda and Johansson, yeah. Yeah, which uh, because I know 
Hilda is a ch uh, cellist, I think, right? So yes. I'm sure yeah. she brought yeah. a lot of that. And then I think it, the scene was The Last Supper. There was a yes. really quick, there was a quite sudden change to something a bit more electronic, if I yeah. noticed correctly. And yes. um, I I absolutely loved that because I felt it woke me up a bit. And it. Um, yeah. so I think it's really worked um, throughout your films. But that's quite a... Phenom I mean, a big tragedy that the world lost Johan, but um, that that's quite a phenomenal combo of Hildur and Johan, like now probably two of the world's biggest composers. Well, it's funny because um, uh, I, I really had a strong feeling for Hilda, mm. um, but again, I wanted that other quality, mm. uh, like you talked about, um, something, something that tapped into the expansive unknown of our existence, I mm. guess. Um, so uh, weirdly, um, I did have a bit of Johan music in the, in my playlists that, <laughs> that, that kind of answered that, that, that kind of feeling that I was looking for. Yeah. But when I spoke to Hilda, I, I found out that they both shared a studio together. Which oh, I didn't really? Know. So it was like <laughs> this random serendipity. Yeah. And not only that, that happened with, um, that also happened with, um, uh, Volker and Dustin O'Halloran on, on Lion. Oh, really? Because I had I had the both of them in my mind, and, yeah. and then and 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 um, Volker was playing at the Melbourne Recital Centre, and I yeah. and I caught him afterwards mm. and um, introduced myself, and I said, I have this crazy idea. How would would you be open to the idea of working with Dustin O'Halloran? And he said, Dustin was the best man at my wedding. <laughs> so. It was like, so, no way. So I guess for two movies in a row, these kind of wild serendipitous moments kind of played out. Yeah. Wow. Because Johan was Icelandic as well, right? Yes. Yeah. And actually very old friends. They oh, were very, wow. very old friends. So I think Hilda may have been one of his oldest friends. Yeah. It's crazy the amount of insanely talented creatives that have come from Iceland for a country with the oh, population yeah. of like 300, like the population of Canberra, basically. It's, um, it's really amazing. I think that isolation and, and that land, obviously, mm. I mean, in, inspires such incredible music. Yeah. Um, and another of your freak, frequent collaborators has been uh, Robert McKenzie, who yeah. is super talented. He's I've had him on the podcast, I think, twice now. Um, yep. And what 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 is it about him that led you to uh, collaborate with him on every project? What do you look for in a sound designer collaborator? Yeah, I guess um, I'm. I love sound design. It's a very important part. And I guess um, it, there's actually a lot of for me. A lot of craft goes into sound design. And I guess I like subtlety, mm. and I like texture, and I like. I like feeling um, space. So mm. even if you're in a room, like through sound design, that you feel you feel the land stretching outside the rooms, yeah. whether it be the wind and the quality of the wind or the quality of an insect and the distance that's placed in the sound has mm. a huge impact on the audience experience. So I guess often when you work with sound designers, it's all about them making it as loud as possible. And yeah. um, I found that really irritating. When I work <laughs> with Rob, I just found someone that... Um, had a similar sensibility to, yeah. to, to sound quality. And um, so I guess, yeah, when you've, when someone gets it, mm. uh, you can work together in a beautiful way. And 
when it works out, you just keep going back and you keep building on that relationship. So when I go to, a, when I do a project with him now, he just knows, yeah, you know, where to start, you know, he just, he gets it. And, mm. um, and I think foe is, I think my most extraordinary sound design jobs um, that there, there is so much that he's brought to that film mm. I mean, you listen to that in, even in Dolby Atmos, if you can, watching it in 4K, it's it's oh, an extraordinary yeah. sound experience. I would have loved to watch it in Atmos. Um, but I think that was 5-1, the cinema we saw it yep. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I heard it in another podcast interview that Rob created some artificial insects for yeah. um, Foe. Is that right? That's crazy. I that was Goes the happiest a- I've ever seen, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it was like... I don't know. It just had that kind of retro Atari vibe, you know, like yeah. he's going off making little insects. Um, yeah. yeah. It was just so nice to have a job that would allow him to be creative, you know, mm. and, and kind of really have input and design actual sounds and insects and animals. And, and um, I, look, it was just always a treat to kind of see what he was experimenting with and, yeah. and bringing it. So he also brought um, trying to find a sound for those devices, those technical devices that, felt some somewhat hypnotic um mm. you know and um strangely haunting um mm. so all of those subtle sounds he 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 kind of created which was really fantastic mm. well we'll chat about foe specifically now um because okay. i really hope that uh people go and see it at the cinema because it was a really cinematic experience <laughs> um with with foe being based on a book which i haven't read i i wish i'd had time to read it and i it's now very much on my list um what what was there in the literary form of it in the writing that influenced uh how it would be translated into something visual look the book was pretty visual actually you mm. know um, pretty much from page one i thought I, I i was in this kind of great hitchcock movie you know it had that old cinema feeling to it a stranger mm. arriving in the night a yeah couple living in this remote farm yeah i mean i was already hooked i was just watching the movie mind yeah but then it took all these turns that i just never expected which yeah. i loved and and lo and behold the heart the heart of the story was this relationship and 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 what and hen's plight for, for agency and mm. um and i guess uh that was the that was the the thing that really made me want to make it you know because yeah. it had all of those beautiful rich things that we love to go and see in cinemas but also as a filmmaker to create but the heart and soul of it was very meaningful to me and kind of alarming um so i guess i i i just fell in love with it i mean the mm. book um wasn't as alive as the movie like the book was um pretty much from junior's inner mind like his point of view like yeah. his inner model mm. so i guess um the 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 film was a much more uh multi-dimensional point of view story mm. um and, and and i guess hen and kind of the architecture is built off hen essentially mm. um so but it was it it was relatively easy i guess it it was yeah. a very novel mm. yeah but you you say that the book was uh focused on junior's point of view yeah. and you changed it to um hen's point yeah. of view that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, because in the book, his inner monologue is all of everything he thinks about and talks about is hen. So it's like hen obsessed. Oh, um, so, right. so even though 
even though it's from a male point of view, um, it's all about hen. And and yeah. I think some some female reporter or, or reviewer of the book at some point, don't quote me completely, but I think she said something like it's it's a feminist story told through a man's point of view. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I almost can feel the bullets hitting me now. But, um, but I thought that, no, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's like, yes, it's in a guy's head, but he's trying to understand his wife and he's yeah. trying to reconnect with her and he just adores her, but he's up against um, the mystery of her behavior and mm. the hot and cold nature of where they're at. And um so that was really fascinating, but you you can't be inside someone's head for a movie. It's it, that's yeah. why that's why it's a book. Mm. So um, when you kind of unpick when you unpick the novel and actually put on paper what actually happened in this story, you know, mm. it becomes very exciting. And then yeah. deciding what to reveal, what not to reveal, was what I found really really exciting. Mm. Mm. Very cool. Um, I think it. It would have been a bit unnerving to play that whole film from the perspective of Junior because it'd be difficult to reflect. Oh, no, I'm not going to spoil anything. I was about to give a spoiler. <laughs> that's um, that's a little teaser for whoever's listening to this um, <laughs> that you'll, you'll see when you go see it. Um, you, you need to do two interviews. You need to do the first viewing interview. Yeah, <laughs> because there's a lot to talk about after seeing it. There is. I think I might go see it a second time. I think because, um, as you said in the Q and A, it's really a film that benefits from two viewings. And I think, um, I think I'd say that for all your films, actually, because there's just a lot of thematic depth, especially, yeah. yeah. Um, but. With Faux, I absolutely loved the genre blend um, and many of my favourite films are these kind of grounded sci-fi films that are more focused on drama than the kind of fantastical element of the world in which you're setting the drama. Um, are you a fan of sci-fi? Um, and, like, what are, your, some of, what are some of your favourites? Uh, I, I guess... Um... I, I guess I love all the classics, you know, from Alien to The Thing. Mm. Um, uh, the, obviously, the very early Star Wars I loved as well because um, mm. basically they're spiritual tales. Mm. I guess I loved all that character-driven sci-fi. Mm. Um, I love 2001. Mm. Um, I, I love all of that. I guess I'm not so into modern sci-fi at the moment because it's just become... I mean, all these movies that we used to love were made because people really wanted to make them. Yeah. They were stories they had to tell. Yeah. Now it's really just, it's just a big business now. Yeah. And we make it as glossy and as cool as possible, but it's very hard to find a sci-fi that's meaningful anymore or, mm. or has the same ambition or vision as these early films. Yeah. So I guess um, I haven't felt, for me, sci-fi has been kind of hijacked um, a little bit. Um, yeah. And, and I guess what excited me about this is it's the kind of sci-fi I want to go and watch. Mm. Yeah. And in fact, it's not even really, it's not, it's not using the sci-fi as the selling point. It really shouldn't be. It really is a yeah. relationship story, but set, set in a, in a future, I guess the sci-fi for me um, brings about a really interesting self-reflection mm. um, 
and 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 I think that's super exciting about it. Yeah, uh, after watching Foe, it made me. I had a big think about um, like these kind of sci-fi drama hybrids in which there's a lot more emphasis on the drama of it, and it made me think that like the strength of that is you can put characters in situations and have them encounter problems that we have no familiarity with and it's completely new and it, and drama is just people encountering problems isn't it you're totally yeah right. mm. yeah you're totally right so um you're absolutely correct what i love about sci-fi when it's done when it's used to kind of attack a human story in the most interesting and unpredictable way mm. and uh and that's what I loved about this. I mean, without the sci-fi being introduced, I couldn't have explored that relationship in the way that we did. Yeah. And um, so it's so at the heart of it is just a very relatable, normal human relationship. But yeah, we apply these very unbelievable futuristic ideas at it, and it's just a really great microscope to look at something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's why that's why. That's why that's when genre really works. Is mm. it? It takes you outside of yourself to come back inside yourself in a way. Yeah, and that's what I love about it. Yeah, and um, I heard I heard in another interview that uh, so in this film, Sersha plays a piano, which is very significant to the story. And I heard that you um, the 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 music in those scenes are original compositions. Yeah. Yes. So, what what were you kind of looking for in um in in those compositions? What what kind of brief were you giving uh, the um the composer for that? Well, I mean, in the story, I guess the the, the piano represented all the parts of her that have been lost in the relationship. In mm. a way, she can only express um her true nature in the music um, because yeah. she couldn't in the relationship anymore. So, it was, I knew it was a very important thing to get right hmm. um so i guess we would listen to lots of musicians and um we kept circling around agnes obel because i also you know i know a lot of um music in films when the pianos piano film films can feel very virtuosic and hmm. kind of overly complicated and so i just wanted to find something that was simple but meaningful and emotional and uh, that led us to agnes obel um she she hadn't composed for film before um, so I guess we sent her the script mm. and, a, and a letter to start off with. She mm. read the script and loved it. And we got on a zoom and she was very moved by the story. And she mm. said, she just loved it. And mm. she said, um, she said to me, I, I really understand this woman. I really understand hen. Mm. And, um, I, I had this, and she was scared. She wasn't sure that she could do it. And yeah. I just encouraged her that if you connect with hen and you're a beautiful musician, I, I wholeheartedly believe that you're going to do something very, very special. Whatever you do is going to be great. And it's only me. <laughs> Don't mm. worry. <laughs> um, so she, um, so I did, I did do a big, um, almost like a timeline of the movie mm. of the, of the script mm. broke up, broke it up into acts. And we just talked about each, each little chapter, each little, um, each little stage of hen's emotional journey mm. and um, kind of broke that up and spoke about it. And I just encouraged her to, um, just channel, channel each of those stages through music. Yeah. So it wasn't like I need this cue, this cue. I mean, we we knew the cues we needed, but mm. I said just do three or four pieces that and channel it. And, yeah. um, and then she did that, and we used all of it. I hardly changed a thing. Mm, great. 
That's it was lovely. extraordinary. And then obviously I needed one track. I needed one of those songs to symbolize her leaving, you know, her yep. kind of, um, her, her kind of, her, her clarity and her agency. Um, mm. So what was that kind of, you know, what was her anthem, I guess. Yeah. And, um, and then there was one song that found, we found that in one song, which was Mimosa. Mm. Great. Um, well, I think we have run out of time here now, uh, Garth, but um, thank you so much for joining me and um, good luck with the release of Faux. Again, everyone, please go see it. Um, have a good one, Garth. Thanks again to Garth and the team at Tracy Muir Publicity for organising this. And a massive shout out to the library at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. I need to give a PSA here. I couldn't find a copy of Pins anywhere online, but AFTA's had a copy on VHS. If you live in Sydney and you long for the days of video stores, rows and rows of DVDs, physical media, movies you could touch with your hand, seven day rentals, get a membership to the AFTA's library. Um, they apparently, if I'm correct, they have the largest collection of DVDs in the Southern Hemisphere. And I think anyone can get a membership. I don't, I don't think you have to be a student or a staff member or alumni. Might be wrong though. But if you can, check it out and get a membership because that library is friggin' amazing. Um, that's enough from me. Have a good one, everybody.